uh, do you think you can get me a tape of the show? What on earth for? Well, how often do you get to hear your song on the radio? I'm on the radio every day! W-E-G-L, Hi, I'm Lee. And I'm Lauren. And you're listening to Saturation Italicized on Weagle 91.1 FM. Tune in live at 9 p.m. on Tuesdays for your weekly dose of art and design. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. What's up, Greater Auburn Area? Thank you so much for tuning in to Weagle 91.1 FM. You're listening to Saturation Italicize. So sorry we were out last week, but we hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving with lots of delicious food. I'm your host, Lauren. Oh, my gosh. Again? A two. Oh, gosh. Again? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I'm not your host, Lauren. I am your host, Lee. And I am your host, Lauren. And we have two special guests today. Two weeks of two, of two guests. Who would have guessed? Would y'all like to introduce yourself? Yeah, howdy y'all. My name is Charles. And hey, I'm Harrison. And why don't y'all tell us a little bit of uh, what you do in the design world? Yeah, so we are both industrial designers. So industrial design is essentially product design. So any type of product you can think of, phones, cars, shoes, uh, salt and pepper shakers. (laughs) (laughs) Really big and really small. Exactly. What do y'all enjoy about industrial design? How would you say it differs from graphic design? I'd, uh, the main difference I'd make is it's just in the more physical product side rather than the putting graphics onto products. So y'all mm-hmm. get to have fun throwing the graphics, throwing the visuals onto products. We get to have fun with the products themselves. Yeah. But they yeah. definitely work hand in hand a little bit, I think. Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why they're in the same building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. We get to Sig-doo. share hallways. Whoop, whoop. Wallace Hall. Peggy oh, Wallace yeah. Hall. <laughs> so. The stew. The stew. The stew. So. I have been told that y'all have some exciting industrial design topics for us to talk about today. Um, Feel free. Let's just jump right in. Sounds good. Harrison, you want to take it away? For sure. For sure. Um, Topic we're going to be starting out talking about is the idea of planned obsolescence. And uh, I'll start by just defining our topic. And that is planned obsolescence is a the planning or designing of a product with an artificially limited useful life. And in more layman's terms, that's designing kind of a frail product on purpose. So um, there's kind of a lot of ways to look at this, but the in general why of it is you'd generate, you're going to design a product that would be purposefully frail to generate long-term sales by uh, reducing the time between repeat purchases. So... And there's, Charles and I both have uh, a few examples of this. If you want to throw out an example real quick. Yeah, so I think Harrison can talk a little bit about more of the history, but one of the biggest examples I think that most people will know is Battery Gate, as it was called. So (laughs) Battery Gate was uh, back whenever the iPhone 6s, if anyone remembers, whenever they were, like, they started to slow down and become worse. Uh, Their usability wasn't great, and they kept shutting down. So what happened was Apple was deliberately, pro- or their uh, process, or processors, sorry, would slow down to prevent the handsets or the phone from their degraded batteries shutting down. So at about 30% battery, the phone would go ahead and shut off. Well, people were getting really upset at this because their phone was still usable 
updates kept coming out, phones kept getting better, but the iPhone 6, purposefully, Apple, like, would just, I don't know, they weren't improving it at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a big problem. Um, here's another quick example before we dive fully into the history of it. it was in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, it was when the when Japanese automobiles kind of hit the U.S. for the first time, hit U.S. markets, and everybody was finding they were better, longer lasting, just more durable vehicles. And they forced U.S. manufacturers to respond by making better, more durable products, which sounds just pretty typical because you think yeah a better product comes out we're gonna have to make something better to respond to that and um, it it really connects back to the history of it which we'll get into right now it starts in 1924 the american car market hit a full saturation hey and, uh, hey nice, nice. <laughs> to keep sales up the gm executive uh, pitched the idea of yearly models so before that it was kind of sporadic. You'd have models put out just when they're finished, and it was not yearly by any means. It was just kind of when they figured out, when they got a car produced, be like, okay, go ahead and release it. But the idea of yearly models with fresh changes made to the models would stimulate the market and kind of push people to buy more. And pretty much the entire U.S. economy adopted this Um but notably, Henry Ford was very against it, um, and he Go thought forward. it was he thought it was kind of grimy. He had it thought it had uh, no design integrity, and um, because of this, GM outsold Ford. So that's that was kind of the quick response. Wait, so Ford was making the better cars? Like they were making the more durable cars? They were at first, and then when GM was able to start making yearly models, they started outselling them just because. They were making models each year. People wanted what's new. Uh, look, there's the 1928. It's flashier. It's got better rims on it or something. There's reason for us to buy that instead of this just old Model T that's they still They liked running. the design better. Yeah, they there was did. no real actual improvements. Or there were very minor improvements. It was mainly cosmetic stuff and saying, hey, here's the newest model. And we can thank Alfred P. Sloan for that. Vice yes. President of GM. Yes. Um, and then we'll, we can get into the etymology kind of begins in 1932. Wait, what's etymology? Just the history of the term. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that starts in 1932. A man named Bernard London wrote a pamphlet called Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence. And this was the sur- first bit of history of the term planned obsolescence being used. And his pamphlet... The idea was for the government to impose planned obsolescence to be able to stimulate the economy and kind of try and pull us out of the Depression. So that's kind of the, the beginning of the history of it and the beginning yeah. of the term planned obsolescence being used. And obviously the economy used it for years, not necessarily to pull us out of the Depression, but it was just used to make greater sales. Um, in 1954 is kind of the next big example of it when industrial designer Brooks Stevens, who's kind of the big name that's thought of when you hear about planned obsolescence, he, uh, he gave an entire speech. And one of the key quotes I have written about the speech, he said, the idea of planned obsolescence is instilling in the buyer the desire to own something a little newer, 
a little better, a little sooner than is necessary. Mm. And you can hear there at the end, just a little sooner than is necessary. It's mm. a little grimy. Capitalism. Little, very capitalism. For sure. That, <laughs> absolutely. The whole thing behind it. Yeah. And um, there were different takes on this, but it was absolutely adopted in our world. We see it all the time. But one of the interesting things was in 1959, just in response to that, five short years later, Volkswagen launched an entire campaign about this. And they said, we don't believe in planned obsolescence. We don't change a car for the sake of change. And this was all built up to an ad that they released that had an entire blank uh, sheet. And at the bottom, instead of having a picture of the car, at the bottom they just have written, no point showing the 62 Volkswagen. It still looks the same. Oh, it was tea. Okay. a very bold move, but uh, it seemed effective. They, I mean, they're still around. They're still around. They're still kicking. They're still selling a lot of cars. So it worked for them. Uh-oh. Well, yeah. okay. So in terms of planned obsolescence with, like, y'all's majors and y'all's classes, how much do y'all talk about this? And when you when you personally are designing things, are, how much are y'all keeping planned obsolescence in mind? And are y'all designing, like, with the idea that you would want to go into a company and you'd want to, like, kind of go into that, like, yearly new thing? Or would you want your product to be more long-lasting? So that's, that's kind of a – that's an interesting one. So we've – in our industrial design history class is whenever planned obsolescence is brought up. It's not really talked about after that. Something that we just kind of think about and – um. I mean, at least me, I try and design with more quality, hoping that whatever I'm designing is going to last for a long time. Because I, I want it to stand. I don't want to buy into the whole, oh, we need to constantly have the newest thing every single year with new materials, uh, slightly better upgrades to it, um, slight changes. That's just, that's not necessary. I feel like, and y'all, y'all have said this, I think, on the podcast before, good design kind of goes unnoticed. Yeah, so we be, love that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it should be something that will stand the test of time, will stay for a long time, and won't need to be changed. Yeah, I agree. And you don't notice the changes that need to be done either right. if they're done well. That's just like a reliable product. Exactly, exactly. Reminds me of, I guess I hate to bring up Apple here because, you know, Apple's mm-hmm. queen of playing Love my iPhone, but. Yeah, but like when I think back to the iPhone 4 or something, like I wasn't looking at the iPhone 4 like, oh, they need to redo this. They need to, you know, get rid of the black bars on the home screen or this or that. Um, of course, now looking back, we're like, that's really ugly. And like mm-hmm. the even like thinking back to the Apple Music um, logo on the app, like you don't think this looks really bad, which I guess like is just goes to show like it was good design because you didn't realize at the time it needed right. to be fixed. Yeah, cool. absolutely. I think this kind of connects to your question well is you'll often not realize in the time you're designing something because – Everybody wants to design something that seems timeless. Sure, you want it to seem ahead of the curve, but at the same time, you want it to stick around and be a long-lasting design and really stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, it's a very interesting topic to look at because you it often takes a few years of perspective to realize, Yeah. oh, that's a 70s-looking typeface or, oh, feel- it's a 80s-looking uh, Burger King logo, yeah. whatever it is. I, f- yeah. I feel like also with us being in school right now, our professors really push to us, you know, making a great design that's going to last for a long time. But sadly, whenever we go into industry, it's going to change. Mm-hmm. These comp- their companies trying to make money 
they're going to be pushing this planned obsolescence upon us, whether we really know it or not. So, I don't know. In the same way, I yeah. think, with our projects, our graphic design projects, like, I feel like Lauren and I are told, like, you know, don't do the trendy thing. Don't do, like, the easiest option. But if we're going to go work at Starbucks or something and we're going to, I don't want to make their new holiday cups or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the buzz is, uh, like, you're going to do the trendy thing because mm-hmm. that's yeah. what's going to get posted. That's what, like, articles are going to – Exactly. Forms. Yeah, exactly. Which that's another type of obsolescence. Oh, Perceived obsolescence. Perceived, oh my goodness. what it's called. Well, before we get into perceived obsolescence, it's actually time for us to go to a little ad break. So thank you so much for tuning in to Weagle 91.1 FM. This is Saturation Italicized. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Hi, thank you so much for tuning in to Weagle 91.1 FM. You're listening to Saturation Italicized. I'm Lee. I'm Lauren. I'm Charles. And Harrison. And where did we leave off at? Uh, Perceived obsolescence. T. What is that? So perceived obsolescence is obsolescence of desirability or stylistic obsolescence occurs when designers change the styling of products uh, so trend-setting customers will purchase the latest styles, i.e. fashion, shoes, Jordans for all of the Jordan oh, fans wait, out there. Oh, wait, like micro-trends? Is that like... Micro-trends and I guess... Regular? Yeah. Know the difference between micro trends, really? Well, well, micro trends are like what's like happening kind of right now with like TikTok and everything, where like a certain like very specific pattern on like pants yeah. will get really popular. Yeah. So that could definitely really be in there. Yeah, yeah. Like in yeah. two weeks or something. Um, clothes is just the big like fashion is the big overarching one for this. So they're just trying to, you know, the Jordans. I keep on coming back to this. I'm not a big basketball like shoe fan myself. But, uh, I mean, it's, I hate to say, it's really the same shoe every year. It, they just kind of change the look up a little bit. They do get some good designers in. Um, Nike works a lot with industrial designers on designing these shoes. Really? So, yes. Wait, have y'all Pops. ever done a project for shoes? We have had to draw shoes, and they are very hard. It is a uh, very competitive industry. Very cutthroat, very lucrative. Yeah, um, if anyone is interested in that, good luck. <laughs> um, I actually have a quote kind of. I included because I knew it would would push a little bit of buttons. It gets into the graphic design side, and I'm just. Uh, are you trying out. to? You're coming to our podcast, and you're going to push our buttons. We have yeah, to. I it's our one moment. And uh, yeah. see y'all's thoughts. I this very much connects to it. It's a quote by a designer named George Nelson, Babyface George Nelson, if you will. <laughs> um, and the quote is: "Design is an attempt to make a contribution through change, when no contribution is made or can be made." The only process available for giving the illusion of change is styling. And that gets into the the graphic design side because a lot of graphic design is styling. I, Lauren, do you know what that quote meant? No, I have no clue what that meant. That just like went right, <laughs> over, right my over my head. head dude. I heard the styling. I yeah, heard design. Can you, Harrison, could you summarize for that? us that quote and maybe for the listener not not for us the listener needs to know yeah Yeah. um i mean he's as best i can read it is saying when you can't make any further contributions to a design the only change you can make is different styles of it different just kind of looks another example kind of put into an example of that to help you help out the viewers or listeners, I mean, not viewers, is uh, one of our professors, Randy Bartlett, always tells us that since the beginning of time, we've been designing a better bucket. 
the bucket hasn't changed, but it look has or its look has changed quite a bit. So. Mm. So basically, if you can't make something better, you can make it look better. Exactly. Yeah. So oh, you can pretty it up. That doesn't makeup push on it. my buttons. I love that. No, I just I definitely wanted to get y'all's thoughts on mm-hmm. it because it seemed basically so feel like that's more just from the quote sake. Seems like he's taking more of a shot at graphic design and the idea of styling rather mm. than just because that definitely has its place changing styles well is necessary design is a form of communication Mm -hmm. yeah and so when you're talking about like let's go back to the bucket example uh when you're talking about a bucket like you're not trying to communicate anything with a with a buyer or consumer or anything but if you're advertising for the bucket you know you want a poster that clearly states this is a bucket that will hold water, but it needs to look pretty while doing that or no one's going to look at it. Right. I feel like another thing is like styling. It makes me think of decorating versus designing Mm -hmm. because our professors always say you want to design, you don't want to just decorate. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have like useless stuff Mm -hmm. that's more like you're just adding stuff to add it, but actually styling it and refining it and making it better. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say cuz specifically in that quote he's you know he says the thing about when you can't progress the design any further but I don't think there's like ever going to be a design that's so good that it couldn't be progressed further if s- someone with the right eye looked at it because right. pr- progression can also be like taking away from a design to make it better, you know. So I don't know. That's mm-hmm. my thoughts. <laughs> Another thing I was going to go on to was uh, there's two more like kind of examples under this. So there's contrived durability. So these are products that are designed to deteriorate quickly. Then there is um, uh, prevention of repairs that is also done in quite a bit of design. So which I love them. My girlfriend and I use these all the time. Disposable cameras are a big one. They're single use. You throw them away once you're done, but you keep buying them and they keep making money. Yeah. Um, another huge one was uh, Canon and HP inkjet printers mm-hmm. incorporate a replaceable print head, which always fails. Printers. And, uh, <laughs> that print head has such a high cost to replace it that it's easier for the owner to just end up buying an entirely new printer. So they're selling this print head for X amount of dollars, and then they're charging double, triple that for you to replace the printer, but it's so much easier to just buy a new printer. So people just buy the newest printer Printers. with the same ink head that uh, okay. fails on them. A little tangent about printers. This is has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> but, okay, can we talk about the fact that, like, we have self-driving cars now. We have AI that makes its own art, that goes into art competitions, and yet printers act like they're still in the stone ages, dude. <laughs> yeah. Like, they mm-hmm. are the most aggravating piece of technology that has ever been made before dude i think i I think they're one of the most complex bits of machinery because they're highly emotional beings they know (laughs) they know exactly when you need something they know when you're trying to print something quickly that's when they fail trying to do something fast you need something printed out for a class in 10 minutes or a presentation you have to make in Mm -hmm. just a few minutes and they know that's the time they're going to fail you Mm-hmm. And they wait for that moment. They do. No, <laughs> printers, like the printers in Wallace, the manual feed will be like, oh, you have like 
a $40 piece of paper that you only have one copy of that you need to print perfectly? Well, what if I just like crammed it and crumpled it up and then just everything broke? The paper broke, the printer broke, and now you're just, you just can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I love Wallace printers. Oh, I think a professor of ours, his his best advice when you really need a print is pretty much to just slowly and softly pet the machine <laughs> speak words of affirmation to it. That's all you can do. You have to walk into it the is. print room like really yeah. calmly and act like you don't have to like do anything like you're there to chill. They can't know. They can't feel the fear on you. <laughs> they definitely still smell it on me though. Oh, all the time. All the time. Uh, Charles touched into this that uh, touches into pretty much getting us to modern day as far as the history of planned obsolescence goes, and that's the right to repair movement or just creating products to where they are very difficult to repair or pretty much you have to pay the company X amount of dollars to repair it. It's usually a better idea to just buy a new product. And um, That's how a lot of cars are. Absolutely. Cars, mm-hmm. the biggest one. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. is a very big one. And um, there's been some stuff done recently there's both in 2013 and 2015. The EU has implemented uh, several impositions as well as the French National Assembly. They have set up a fine of like 300,000 euros and two years jail time for uh, planning the failure of products. And uh, they're now in the U.S. is what's called the right to repair movement, which is working to pass legislation so you can not void your warranty if you open up a machine or take something apart to see if you can repair it that shouldn't void your warranty and um, they're just working to kind of open that up for designers handy people anybody to not have to just kind of bend to the will of companies and buy a new product or pay a whole lot of money just to replace it or yeah. So that's a bill they're working on right now? They're working in uh, several states on different legislation mm-hmm. for the... Do you know if Alabama's one? Alabama is one that it has not passed yet, but it is active as a bill, I believe. Hmm. Can, that would be sick. Yeah. It's um, just called the Right to Repair Movement. And then there's a book by Aaron Perzanowski called End of Ownership, which touches into a lot of this topic. So well, it's a pretty interesting one. Speaking of ends... This is the end of this segment because it is time to go for, to an ad break, everyone. Um, you are tuned in to Saturation Italicized on Weagle 91.1 FM. Don't go anywhere. Hi, thank you for tuning in to Weagle 91.1 FM. You're listening to Saturation Italicized. Um, let's just jump right in. What, what's next, guys? I have, we're, we're switching pages and we're going and we're learning about fashion today. So, I don't know if anyone has heard about this, but Gucci's creative director has recently stepped down. His name is Alessandro Michel, and he transformed the fading Gucci into, like, the eccentric style that we know that it is now. Um, He was born in Rome. He's 49 years old, and he attended the Rome's Academy of Costume and Fashion, and he was originally hired for Gucci to design bags for them in 2002, and he was hired by Tom Ford, but then became the creative director in 2015. Um, His aesthetic is described as crossing time periods, 
reference points and conceptions of beauty, and it seems perfectly calibrated for the, the more democratic social media age. And he really prioritized character over chic. So a lot of his stuff is really unique, really gender fluid, really weird is like the best way that I can put it. But it really has helped Gucci's image, and they actually earned about 10 billion euros in revenue last year, which is kind of crazy. And I feel like a lot of it relates back to him. Um, he had his first live show since COVID about a year ago, and it had Gwyneth Paltrow, Dakota Johnson, Billie Eilish, Jared Leto. I believe this was the event. Do y'all remember the Jared Leto, like, costume where he was like holding his head yeah that's this guy. okay that's this guy so he has like a lot of different campaigns he has like he had one campaign that was like renaissance inspired elements and it was like luxurious it really combined like fine art and high fashion and then in fall in winter of 2018 models had life-size identical human head replicas of themselves that they carried as they like walked the runway and it took over six months to make and that show was very fantastical had horns baby dragons three eyes so many interesting things wait do we know what the like theory behind the like human head thing was like why he did that i don't know what was the artistic stance for that i you don't know okay my research didn't get me that you far. see yourself I don't know. I don't know. Very French, very Robespierre. Yeah, it's very interesting. He also introduced a sustainability campaign for Gucci and reduced the use of fur in 2017. Um, and then in the spring and summer 2020, all like the runway shows, events, all of their like invitations, construction, all of that was carbon neutral. And they oh, started, cool. yeah, they made like an eco-friendly collection called Off the Grid, which uses organic, recycled, and bio-based materials. And I think it's interesting because the ads for it have Jane Fonda and Lil Nas X. <laughs> and I don't him. know. Who's Jane Fonda? You don't know who Jane Fonda is? Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda. Fonda. Do y'all not know who Jane Fonda is? I know her name. I oh forgot. my yes. gosh. Okay, she's like. She's like this Queen. girl that was, I say girl, she's like older now, but she was like probably. an 80s like workout icon. Now she's in the oh. Netflix show. Um, I forget what it's called. Absolutely Loki a babe. How do y'all know Yes, her? Jane Fonda. Yeah. She's in Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Hmm. I don't know. She's just an icon. Yeah, I know. She's very different than little, little Nas X. I don't know. They're trying to hit going. both. They are all like, different. They're getting a lot. Yeah, they're getting a lot. There's a Venn diagram of people in the world, or not a Venn diagram. There's two types, and it's people who know Jane Fonda, and it's people who know Lil Nas X. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, you get everyone. That's facts. Yep. So that's facts. he did his job. Um, He also changed. They used to have, like, five runways a year, but now they just have two, and neither of them focus on a certain gender like some of the other ones. So his emphasis was really gender-neutral clothes, and you can see his influence on Harry Styles. Like, he's styled Harry Styles a lot. And what I think is really interesting, which I wish I could show pictures, but his most recent Milan Fashion Week, he had 68 pairs of identical twins. So, like, I... Wow. Yeah, literally. Claps for that. He would have, like, the two identical twins, like, dressed, I like, identically, obviously, and they would, like, walk hand in hand down the runway. And it was just really, really cool. Twinning. You, you, yeah. Oh, 
you said uh, that you wish you could post a picture of it, which reminds me, um, I should have said this way earlier. Y'all should check out our Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll post a picture of this sometime uh, this week. You can find us on Instagram at saturation.italicized. Um, thank you. Getting the sound effects was so bad for me. Someone else is gonna have to take over their array sometime. I found the human head thing, the images. Mm -hmm. That's terrifying. No, it's crazy. It's so accurate. It's Look. so beyond yeah. accurate. It, it's, it's wow. no, they like, I don't know how they made them. Imagine just like having that. Definitely just silicone. You think, could you, could y'all make that industrial design? Give us enough time. How much time? Give me a few, like two months. How many human heads uh, did he have? You could probably give me a month for at least exactly. one to learn it and perfect. Not perfect it. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you, give me, you give me a month to learn how to do it and then try it after I failed a few times. All right, Charlie. And I bet you I well, could get it done. Not me. I would, I'd be dead in a week trying to make a, a mold of my head and I'd just <laughs> choke out because I forget to make a... Charlie, you're coming terrible. back on the pod in two months. <laughs> Sounds good. I better have, better a have a replica of me and Lauren's head. And I know what I'm doing for Christmas break now. <laughs> <laughs> what do y'all, are y'all, I don't know how familiar y'all are with Gucci, but what do y'all you, do think they have the planned obsolescence, all that kind of stuff? How do you think they do it? Because I feel like, honestly, a lot of like luxury fashion brands, sometimes I feel like they just make the same purse like every year. But Gucci, they really stand out. So what are y'all's thoughts? I'm not I'm not huge into luxury brands, so I don't like know them that well, know their products super well. Um I think that there is there's definitely elements of planned obsolescence in there that they probably aren't meaning to have in. They're probably just trying to make new clothes and push the boundary of what clothes can be and what fashion can be. Mm -hmm. But from more of like a practical sense, looking at it, it's not needed. Yeah. To me, at least, it's not needed. I could go, you, anyone could go to the thrift store, go buy some clothes that they found that are 30 years old and they work perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Clothes haven't changed. Actually, they've really gotten worse for the climate that we're in, yeah. not just climate change, but I mean, where you live, a long time ago, I mean, people used to be able to wear down in the South, long sleeve, long pants during the winter while they're farming, dealing with mosquitoes, uh, all kinds of bugs, tall grass, rain, all that, and be perfectly fine, mm -hmm. stay cool. Now you try and wear a long sleeve shirt and some pants down here in Alabama in the summer, you're going to be sweating. You're going to have a heat stroke. Yeah, but are. it's like a... It's a newer thing, I think, to dress, like, to express yourself. Not newer as in the mm -hmm. last, like, 50 years, but maybe in the last, like, And that's where it differs. That's where that break yeah. is, I feel. But I was going to say, uh, like, with high fashion, is that what you call this? Like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, high-end fashion. High-end yeah. fashion? Yeah, yeah whatever. Um, like, you look at it on the runway, and it is straight up, like, pieces of art. Like, mm -hmm. it's yes. a form of art. And so, like, I hate... I hate to look at any art and be like, this should have like a use, I guess. But outside of celebrities, like high end art is high end art, high end like fashion is like completely inaccessible. I was thinking mm -hmm. that like you see stuff and you might think it looks really cool, but I can't name one event that I could wear any of those runway outfits to. But and none of it ever really goes we know to market. Harry Styles can. 
Jared Leto can. They have such yeah. a niche target audience. Mm-hmm. Like they a, do. Uh, I think, I mean, obviously, I don't have gold coins just falling out of my pockets. I'm not the balloons. able to afford the balloons you got? a hearty <laughs> amount of Gucci or any of these products, but I do think they have a different shelf life than, say, your typical Levi's and such. Because mm-hmm. you can see people going out on these runways, and this touches into the planned obsolescence, it affects them, I think, a bit less because you can see someone go out on a runway or go uh, have a bunch of paparazzi chasing them as they decide to wear some 1988 sweater, whatnot, out on the street, and they'll be people will love it because it's a sweater currently. Yeah, yeah it's some vintage uh, product, and yeah. I think that's a really cool aspect of it. That's true. And like how trends are coming back. Like we're recycling mm-hmm. a lot of trends. Yeah, the 20 year trend used. cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means, y'all, pretty soon we're going to be in 2010. I'm going to have to skip that. Oh, trend. no. We're going to have to I'm ready for the it. large print Z. I can't go back to my neon phase. Yeah, no, we can't. We <laughs> Neon's can't go back. so epic. We're sleeping. Do I ever wear it? No. But like neon green has to be one of like the best colors ever. It's beautiful. Oh, I'm going to break out my silly bands. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait for it. I'm pulling out my uh, fighting necklace and my power balance bracelet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's going to be crazy. I'm going to be so powerful wearing those. But what's really powerful is ad breaks and songs. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Saturation Italicized. Bye, Dr. Phil. Thank you for coming in. Another week, another little session with uh, Dr. Phil. It's so nice he makes time for us. Reliably every week. Every single week, the same he time. flies down to Alabama. It's Auburn, crazy. Alabama. Also, the song you were just listening to was Ophelia by the Lumineers. Um, you're tuned in to Saturation Italicized on WEGL 91.1 FM. And it is time for my personal favorite part of the show, the quote identification game. But today it's not the quote identification game. Today... <laughs> It is the Quirky Artist Facts game, because I couldn't think of a <laughs> good title for better. this game. Quirky so. Artist Facts. So I'm going to be listing out three facts, quirky facts, about famous artists. Um, you will have three choices to choose from of who you think this fact is about. If you get it right, you get one pretentious art student sticker. Sweet. But if you don't, then you're kicked off and you can't come back on the podcast ever, and you're shunned as a designer. So... Stakes are high. Stakes are super high, y'all. Like, good luck. This feels like every week at design school. It really does. <laughs> All right. Fact one. What artist was known to very rarely, if ever, bathe? And I would like to quote that I only put very rarely because where I read this said that he had never bathed. But, like, I don't know how you can certify that. Like, I don't know how you can prove that this man never bathed before. So, choices are Vincent Van Gogh, Claude Monet, or Michelangelo? I'm so fearful mm. for any answer. Mm. <laughs> yeah, these are all artists I respect, like, the work of. Before we fully answer it, I'd like to shout out a, a guy we know who has never shaved. He's said, why His would face? I want to shave? He's grown out a great beard. He's Ever? Like, why would I own a razor? Ever. Uh, Charles knows more than I. A buddy in your studio. Micah? Yeah. Micah Bortz? What a great guy. Love him. Love him to death. That's, like, really impressive. Throwing the beard out. Like, man, I like the beard. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't think he's ever shaved. It's kind of like the people Anyways. who 
never like cut their hair. I wish I could do that. Yeah. I feel like my hair looks I tried so that. bad. And I cut it. So we got anyway, bathing. Back to bathing yeah, and yeah. artists. Okay, so Claude the Monet, we got Van Vincent Gogh. Van Gogh, Claude yeah. Monet, Michelangelo. I'm gonna go Van Gogh. I feel like he was such a starving artist. Stop he didn't bathe. it. It doesn't mean I don't love him. He's still my favorite I artist. But love him. I could see him skipping the skipping self- a yeah. bath or two. Yeah. Or three I, or four. I think I'm gonna side with Claude Monet because I know he painted a lot in fields and different mm-hmm. different locales like if that. If you've seen pictures of Monet. I know for a fact that Can you uh, smell pictures, Charlie? No, no, I mean like I think I've seen like a picture of Monet or like a painting no, of him. It looks very well put that, together. Uh, <laughs> that the showers or Van Gogh was put into different institutions and I have to assume you bathed well. there. That's so. true. I think I'm going to side I, with Monet. Am I the outlier? Should I say Michelangelo or do I go... Uh, go with your heart. I th- I've been... Uh, Van Gogh. Van Gogh. See? Not a single person got it this was one right. It was Michelangelo. It was Michelangelo. Uh, oh, my. It was and time. honestly, like, not to roast y'all or anything, but, like, kind of use the head a little bit because Michelangelo was alive, like, a way lot. back when, y'all. But they had bathhouses then. Yeah, they but like it was a huge thing. Personal for them hygiene was, wasn't like the biggest thing. But bathing ever. was huge for them. Like, didn't they like dump their like what we would use a toilet for? Didn't they dump <laughs> that in the street? They did. They had certain canals that they would dump it into and yeah. then water into that. Is this like the aqueducts? Yeah. So the, no, aqueducts no, aqueducts just is for water. water yeah. yeah, like drinking so, water. But and they stuff. did. They were some of the first to develop uh, public sewage systems. Yeah, I just see, took Tech and Civ, so we've they talked have about this. water. And this. This but they didn't. He didn't. To but he didn't. Incans and Aztecs that were discovered to just—they had incredible bathing systems. They did. And were known to they be did. very clean, very scent-oriented. They burned a lot of incense, and they liked liked to smell good. I love that for them. Yeah. Do you think Michelangelo painted the whole Sistine Chapel and never bathed during that? If that he never place bathed, smelled then, yeah. rank. Like, what'd you say? <laughs> if he never bathed, yeah. Do you think he just? He just stayed up. Like, just Did, kept what if he just, he just like, slept there? Slept, Imagine yeah. like the they threw him up a subway smell. sandwich. That's so gross. <laughs> All right, question anyway. two. Everyone like is a negative, pretentious art sticker right yeah. now. Or so. as humble as we can be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What artist carried a gun around for quote people who annoyed him? Oh, is it A. Picasso, B. Gustav Klimt, or C. Caravaggio. Picasso. I'm going to say Car... Well, uh, did they have guns when Caravaggio was around? I don't know when he's Bad question. Who's that? I know, like, one painting by him. I think it's... I know his name. I assume he existed during the Medici's reign, but... uh, What are you talking about? Caravaggio. Caravaggio. The Medici family, siding with uh, artists and supporting them as patrons. He was in a little art history to throw at you. Uh, I think he's from the 1600s. Right? I'm siding with Picasso I'm as also well. Say I've Picasso. seen seen good pictures of him just yeah. firing off man. guns randomly. Y'all are all correct. So you're all like on the up oh, and up again. Go. I'm really proud of you. We're back to neutral. What I read said that he like it kept it blank, but he would just like fire it up in the air when people started to annoy him. Which is don't blame him. Well, I like I hate kidding. Picasso, like he was like not my favorite at all. But that's pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's pretty cool. 
good way to get people away from you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And wasn't he alive up until, like, the 70s or something? It was, yeah. No, yeah. that's, that, is that Dolly I'm thinking about? I think that about? was Dolly. Dolly. I think, no, no, Picasso was alive yeah. till. My father was alive yeah, during he, a short time. I think he it was died 70s in or 1973. 80s. Imagine yeah, pic- 70s. like Picasso mm-hmm. and like 70. Yeah, like, die then. Just Who? walking around. Dolly. Picasso in a McDonald's. Dolly died in 1989. That could have happened. Wow. Dolly That's died weird. in 89. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. No, he uh, had anteaters as pets. I Little didn't know fact. that. What What would you do if that was my next quirky fact? <laughs> Then I guess that would have all of the cool so pitiful. Improv questions. What is the next question, Lee? Yeah, let's go. The next question. Oh yeah, we're running out of time. Um, which artist had a female alter ego for portraits? Mm. An artist I actually really love. Was it A. Duchamp, B. Salvador Dali, or C. Kandinsky? I'm gonna guess Kandinsky. Kandinsky. Harrison. I'll guess Dali. Your guest, Ali. You all stink. Oh, oh my it. gosh. Also, Lauren, it? Lauren, I specific- yeah, I on the way to the podcast last week, I said, Lauren, I have a really fun fact for you. Duchamp did fun little photographic portraits where he had an alter ego as a woman. And this comes, really this comes he's the one that started the uh, absurdist art, right? Yes, he yeah, was the he one that started the urinal. Y'all talked about yes. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Right. that's why I thought it wasn't circle. him. Oh, man. No, because that's like that makes it even more yeah, it reason does. to him. It's so him. It's so Duchamp of him. He, what? I'm trying to find pictures of him dressed as his alter ego. Hold up, let me. I have the name. She had a specific name. Let me find it. Let me find it. Um. Ro, I don't, I don't know if it's pronounced like Roselave, but it's R R O S E space S E with the tilde on it A L A V Y, um, mm. which sounds like the French phrase. I'm gonna butcher this. Roselave or love is life. It probably is derived Roselave. She represented his belief in an ever-present undercurrent of sexuality and humanity, and her mysterious nature made her seem as complex as a character as Duchamp himself, which is, like, so real. I love him. He's so, so, so sick. So cool. Yeah, he is cool. He's definitely, like, a trailblazer. Mm-hmm. For sure. One of his kind. For sure. Ahead of his time, for sure, too. Yeah, for sure. I think sure. Uh, next week, y'all will have to tune in, because I think we're going to talk about one of his good friends, uh, the Baroness who was another fellow artist who helped do some pretty absurd, absurdist stuff with us. Actually helped photograph, uh, photograph his alter ego a little bit. But we'll get to that next week. We'll get to it next week. Um, but I think that wraps it up for this week of Saturation Italicized. Thank you so much, Harrison, Charlie, for coming on. It was Thank you lovely having you. It's been a lot of fun. Learned a lot of really cool things. Um, learned, Harrison, you know a little bit too much about art history. You're coming to take my crown. <laughs> Makes me a little mad. But yeah. I've been your host, Lee. And I'm your host, Lauren. And we will see you all next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Be sure to check us out on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out on Instagram at saturation.italicize. And Wardam Eagle.